Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everyone to our episode today. We're going to be talking about probably the most famous speech in the 20th century in America, certainly one of the most famous, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, a, a fundamental document for understanding the meaning of the American idea in the 20th century, in modern times. And to help us understand the speech, its importance, and its meaning, and the, the light that it sheds on the American idea is Professor Peter Myers. Peter is Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin. He is an old friend of the Ashbrook Center. He has been uh, teaching in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program for a number of years. He's taught in our Teaching American History seminars. He's contributed to our scholarly works and our uh, volumes that we put out with core documents. Peter has just done uh, amazing work in, for Ashbrook, and, uh, but also, of course, in his own as a scholar. Published very important books on Frederick Douglass, for example, illuminating the political thought of that great American. So today we have with us a real expert on American political thought, and in particular, on the political thinking and arguments of Martin Luther King Jr. Peter, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks very much. I'm 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 restraining myself from uh, from warning our audience against the rule of the experts here, but, uh, uh, but 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 now we should proceed, I guess. Fair enough, or at least a good interlocutor. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Well, I look. Sometimes in in these episodes, we've just, we've had great conversation with folks about documents that a lot of our listeners probably have not heard of, but today we have a document that probably everybody's heard of. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. But take a step back for us. Sometimes maybe when a document is so familiar, we kind of forget things about it, or we think we know things about it that we really don't know. In your opinion, to start with this question, why is this an important document? I, I was thinking about that a little bit, and... Um... Yeah, this is more uh, to begin with, kind of a summary formulation than a than a full explanation. But I think this is this is the most important speech at the most important event of the most important social movement in the 20th century United States. Um, I, I mean to unpack that a little bit. The you know, there were, uh, as, as I imagine everybody knows, there were numerous speeches at this event. King's was the, was the culminating address. I, I suppose King, I mean, there's a reason for that, that it was expected to be the, the capstone event. Um, it was the most powerful and memorable of, uh, of the speeches at the March on Washington. But as an event, the, the March on Washington is, is also a kind of culmination, at least of the first part of the civil rights movement. Let's, I mean, dating it narrowly, we could say civil rights movement, um, 20th century civil rights movement extends from, say, let's say 1955 uh, to um, 1968, I guess. But <clears throat> 
it had achieved its most important victories um, by 1965. And the 1963 event here, I think, um, has, uh, is, is the culmination of the first set of campaigns for full and equal civil rights that, um, that were the objectives of the, uh, of, the, of the more successful part, at least, of the, of the civil rights movement. And I think, you know, to complete the whole thought, you could say that the, the, the civil rights movement of the 20th century with the things that it accomplished and the influence it has had on the subsequent shaping of the country, uh, I think you'd have to say is the is is the um, is the most important sequence of events really in the development of American the American political society in the in the in the 20th century. I mean, very dramatic changes in the fabric of American society and in American law. In, um, uh, uh, that are that are set in motion, I think, largely by the civil rights by the civil rights movement. So you mentioned the event that this speech was was given at the March on Washington. Help us um, again. Some of our listeners will know this, but many won't necessarily know this. Help us understand more about the historical context of this speech and of that event. What's happening here? Okay, this goes back a little bit. The the I, I would suggest that the, the March on Washington finds the civil rights movement coming out of a kind of, emerging out of a kind of crisis moment in its own history. And, and to explain that, uh, we should go back a little bit, a little bit further. Uh, so if we want to date it as I just did, uh, which is a little artificial. I mean, there, there are very important things going on in the 1940s, but, but let's say uh, that, it, uh, that the modern movement, especially with King's involvement, begins in 1955. So that begins in Montgomery. And so you have um, Brown versus Board of Education handed down the ruling, you know, momentous ruling, spring of 1954. About that same time, I think April of 1954, Martin Luther King Jr. is appointed the new pastor at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. Very young man. I mean, he's 25 years old and, uh, at this point in 1954. Already has a reputation as an orator, has some family connections because of his father's ministry in Atlanta. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, forward a bit to uh, December of 1955, Rosa Parks um, disobeys the segregation ordinance on the bus, gets arrested. This outrages the black community in Montgomery and, and for that matter, elsewhere also. And they decide, to put it kind of simply, they've, they've had enough. Um, and so interestingly enough, it was a group of women, church women, some of whom, you know, school teachers by, by profession, who, uh, who, who wanted to organize a boycott movement. And... They had more to pay for it in a way. They, I mean, they, they had more at risk than the, than the pastors did because the pastors of black churches aren't going to get deprived of their jobs for leading it. So the pastors become the leaders and King among them becomes, is elected the leader of this, of this boycott movement or the spokesman anyway. And it turns out to be a great success. And so King becomes nationally famous. We go forward a bit 
King wants this to spread, this sort of activism, through the South. So they form this network of activist ministers called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, famous organization now, existing to this day. And the first thing they want to do is uh, campaign for voting rights. And again, to summarize really very quickly and simply, the campaigns don't come to much. And the, the SCLC doesn't achieve very great successes later 1950s. King spends some of his time writing a book, uh, actually, Stride Toward Freedom, uh, The History of the Montgomery Movement, which is a good book to read. But around 1960, um, King's leadership of the movement is sort of stagnant. And so then occurs, then the students take over. Uh, and so you've got uh, student sit-ins that begin more or less spontaneously in North Carolina. They spread throughout the South. A new organization forms, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which we summarize as, as SNCC. And this is a, a little younger, a little more aggressive, a little more daring approach to, the, uh, to civil rights activism. And it has King worried a little bit um, because King thinks this might be a little too daring and it might eventuate in violence, which is going to produce a backlash, which is going to defeat the movement. So he's concerned to reassert leadership of the, of the movement because he wants to keep it in a, in a nonviolent direction. And uh, after a failure, a failed campaign, the King didn't begin, but the failure kind of got tagged on him. In, uh, in Albany, Georgia, this was in uh, 1962, King decides, this is the moment of crisis that I was referring to. So King decides what we need is a kind of high risk, high reward campaign um, to try to reassert, to try to regain some momentum in the civil rights movement. And that's the Birmingham campaign. So Birmingham, spring of 1963, produced most influential writing of the civil rights movement, the letter from King's letter from Birmingham jail. King got thrown in jail on Good Friday uh, for violating a, a judge's order not to, not to march. But eventually that movement in Birmingham produces success and King decides from there, well, I shouldn't say it's only his decision, it's not, but um, what we should do now is go straight to the federal government. What we really want is a new federal civil rights law. Now's the time to go for it. Um, Others had been planning a new march on Washington, and uh, and that's how it uh, and uh, and and that's how it that's how it takes shape. So King's uh, King comes to Washington along with other leaders of the civil rights movement, as you right. say, to kind of um, revive what seems to have been faltering a little bit and take the campaign national, as you say. Right. Right. Um, Talk about the event itself in Washington and how the event and understanding King's speech as the culmination of that event kind of helps us understand the speech itself. Well, the March on Washington uh, was something, was a, for lack of a better term, a dream for a long time of, uh, of A. Philip Randolph, who was an uh, uh, important labor leader an uh, older man by, by the 1960s, but he'd been an important labor leader since the 1930s. And uh, he initially planned a march on Washington in 1941 because he wanted to put pressure on the Roosevelt administration, the, the Franklin Roosevelt administration, for, uh, for federal action, essentially in the area of employment, non-discrimination in, uh, in government contracting, um, you know, World War II being an opportune time. And... Um, 
So there's going to be a march in 1941. Franklin Roosevelt is nervous about that, and so issues an executive order and negotiates it away. But Philip Randolph still wanted to do this march to advance the further aims of uh, uh, yet unrealized of the civil rights movement. And so that had been kind of in the works in a way for quite some time, you know. And so now, as I say, the, the Birmingham success is kind of the precipitating thing with regard in the frame of civil rights history. But we should, we should think too of something that King makes plain, if it isn't already obvious, in the very beginning of his speech, that this is the 100 year, 1963 is the 100-year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and, uh, and so Philip Randolph and his assistant, who becomes also King's assistant, Bayard Rustin, are planning a march on Washington to commemorate emancipation and make that a kind of backdrop for the demands that they're going to make. And uh, so this, the, the big six civil rights leaders uh, get involved in that, including, including King. And Rustin does a lot of the the logistical planning to carry it off in a in an orderly and peaceful way and in that in that respect it proved to be a, a tremendous success so it's really and this helps us to understand then it, the choice of the location for the speech it's on the steps of the lincoln memorial yeah yeah it's a march because you know king likes to imitate biblical marches and so it begins um, essentially with uh, on capitol hill at congress and it ends at the at the lincoln memorial um, and uh, uh, which is, of course, not you know accidental. Um, that uh, uh, that's that, but I think that the relation is a little more occasional. I can say a little. I don't know. You might have a follow-up question. I can say a little more about that if uh, if you want to follow up. Yeah, sure. Because it, it's on purpose, right? Yeah. 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 What's um, what, what? What is in your mind? What's the purpose of having this march culminate at the Lincoln Memorial and have the speech be given on the steps? And I think, in fact, if folks go to the Lincoln Memorial, it's marked the spot there, and they can actually yeah. see and stand where yeah. King stood when he delivered the speech. Yeah, I can I can confirm that. Uh, uh, as you remember, I, I lived in D.C. for a year a few years ago, and then spent the, you know went went to the Lincoln Memorial uh, more than several times, and uh, and that's that's true. There's a little square. That, uh, that, that, uh, that marks the spot on, on which he spoke. About the, the relation with Lincoln, let's, uh, let's maybe say a couple of things more about that. Um, Abraham Lincoln was a large figure in, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s imagination, actually for pretty much his whole mature life. Um, the very first speech, I think that we know of at least, that King gave came as a 15-year-old in a high school oratory contest. And the title of the speech was The Negro and the Constitution. But the speech really isn't about the Constitution in any direct way. It was about the legacy of Lincoln. I mean, he, he doesn't spend his time talking about James Madison. He spends his time talking about, about Abraham Lincoln. And to come back to the, the, the dream speech, he, he sees, King sees, the civil rights movement as the completion of emancipation. Um, and in fact, uh, before the March on Washington, King 
in a, a communication with President Kennedy was urging President Kennedy to issue a new executive order, uh, uh, an expansive anti-discrimination order, and call it a Second Emancipation Proclamation, which Kennedy, uh, I think Kennedy resisted some of the grandiosity of that. But, uh, but you can see that, that King has a lot, of, uh, a lot about Lincoln and the legacy of Lincoln on his mind. Um, I think it's true also, King said somewhere that um, when he was composing the dream speech, that he, um, he was trying to model it some, at least on the, on the rhetoric of, of, of Lincoln. Mm. So, uh, well, yeah. that, that makes me think we ought to go to the speech itself. All right. And take a, take a look. Let me just begin to read. These, are, these will be some familiar words to people, but it really connects with what you just said. King, King begins, I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the point you just made. This momentous decree came as a beacon, great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. So here he's clearly linking the civil rights movement, as you just said, to the work begun by Lincoln or the work continued by Lincoln uh, of emancipation, of full freedom. Is that how King sees himself in that tradition? I, yes, I, I think so. I think um, that we, we can, let's, let's say this, uh, I think your, your word, you know, Lincoln as a continuer of, uh, of the American promise is, I mean, in a very important way, a continuer is, is, is the way that King understood it. Um, I, I said a couple of minutes ago that King's first book called Stride Toward Freedom was a history of the Montgomery boycott movement. His second book is called Why We Can't Wait, which was published in very late 1963. That's a history of, essentially of Birmingham, but also, but, but of the whole 1963 movement really, Birmingham and the March and the March included. I bring it up because in that book, Why We Can't Wait, King says something similar to the passage you just read when uh, you know, King says in the dream speech that this is the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation, which is quite a thing to say. But um, what he says in, in Why We Can't Wait is that the civil rights movement of the 20th century, um, which he also calls the, you know, quote unquote, the Negro Revolution, he says is the third American Revolution, and it is the culminating American Revolution. And the first two are, of course, you know, the, the, the founders' American Revolution and the, the revolution that Lincoln carries through the new birth of freedom in the, in the Civil War. And so both of the, the, each of the prior two is incomplete in some important way. And the civil rights movement is the completion. And... Uh, well, yeah, there's there's another thought there, but I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll stop for a second if you wanted to. If you wanted yeah, to because that, well, I do because that really makes that helps me make sense of 
of the, the next couple of paragraphs here in the speech, and particularly this fourth paragraph, he talks about why they've come to Washington. And I'll read these words. I'd love to get your thoughts on them. He says, so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was the promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a direct quote from the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah. So you've got King, um, you might say, uh, standing in a straight line between, uh, not between, you know, standing in a straight line, including Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and I don't know, that's not exactly the way the monuments are ordered in Washington, D.C., but there is a certain line of, line of vision from Jefferson Memorial to Lincoln Memorial and, uh, and monument, the monument to King. Um, Maybe, maybe more substantively, let's say, let's say this, that <clears throat> King, uh, I think King has very laudatory words, certainly to say about the Declaration of Independence, and also by extension, maybe in a slightly more complicated way, to the whole American founding, which to him, as he calls it, is, I think you probably want to ask about this, uh, you know, a promissory note. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's an interesting phrase. Yeah, it is. And uh, so King is, King is reflecting on the American promise. And when the speech turns to a spirit of dissatisfaction on the, 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 the failure to, to make good, at least to this point, on the American promise. And so... There is a, let, let me back up just one step and say, you have King inserting himself in this great tradition of American political rhetoric and leadership. But you also have King as preacher, you know, being a preacher and channeling biblical prophets. And so there's a note of, uh, of uh, the, this is hardly an original thought with me, but there's a, there's a note of uh, the prophet Jeremiah here where uh, there's the beginning, the beginning there is a promise, um, you know, a kind of promise of salvation if you, if, you, if you behave yourself in accord with God's law, but the country hasn't done that, and so uh, there's been a promise, then a betrayal, and the civil rights movement understood in that sense, I mean, especially in King's kind of prophetic imagination, is the redemption of the, of the country. After its uh, after its betrayal of its uh, of its original of its original promise, but the promise is in the principles of the founding. So King so, wants to turn us to say he wants to tell Americans, if I'm understanding what you're saying, we here are not we are here to actually lay claim to the American idea. Right. We want right. that idea for ourselves and to participate fully in that idea. We're not turning our back on that. Right. We. And I, I was struck by something you just said. He thought that his speech and more broadly the civil rights movement would not just be a, a redeem the condition of African-Americans, but would redeem the condition of America. What right. do you mean by that? Right, right. Well, the, the, the motto of the SCLC was to save the soul of America, you know, which some people might take as grandiose, but it, but it is, uh, 
uh, it, first of all, it's sincerely meant, and it is encompassing of the whole of the whole country. I mean, it's not just a statement of partiality to 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 an aggrieved group. So, more broadly, I guess I would say that um, it. Let's start with this thought. I think it cannot be emphasized too strongly that King's Revolution is an integrationist revolution. In the, the grandest sense, this was at the, 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 the center of his disagreement with Malcolm X, who offers in, a, in, a, a, in his own famous speech, an interesting reflection on two kinds of revolution the black Americans are putting forward. And one is led by King and the other is led by Malcolm. And Malcolm's revolution, this was at least in uh, the way he thought about it in 1963, was a separatist revolution. He thought he was continuing the legacy of the, of the revolutionary founders in the sense that revolutionary founders declared independence from the people whose rule they were objecting to. Um, and that's what Malcolm wants to do in 1963 also. Uh, but King wants integration. King doesn't want independence. He doesn't want separatism. He doesn't want division. He wants community. He wants, he wants integration. And so you see... In the dream speech, King continually in, invoking and placing himself within a long and dignified tradition of uh, articulations of American principles. And I think, you know, he, he, he certainly mentions like Lincoln and Jefferson explicitly, but there are black Americans, um, you know, great black Americans in the past who are hovering about this speech also. I mean, for instance, the most famous speech Frederick Douglass gave was, was reflecting on the meaning of the 4th of July. Um, and Douglass's speech is also a reflection on the relation of black Americans to their country. Uh, and after some twists and turns, Douglass winds up affirming the wholehearted American identity of, of black Americans. And King, I think, does the, does the same thing here. That's, that's, you know, in the more profound way, what I mean when I say it was, it was integrationist. King wants black Americans to be fully and wholeheartedly American. He wants the country to accept that. And by extension, he wants black Americans to, uh, to accept that also. So let's redeem ourselves and our own condition by being full citizens, but redeem the soul of America by helping all Americans to live up to their principles of justice that they've right. been declaring since 1776. Right. America as a country, like all of us as human beings, has a better self and worse selves. And King is trying to help us be our better selves. Uh, but as, but uh, clearly, as a country. movement, but, but as he also makes clear, it's not just, he doesn't come to just praise the country. Right. He to criticize. He right. comes to call for action. Because I'm thinking about even the next paragraph here, where he says, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note mm -hmm. insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. So it's a scathing criticism of the position of African-Americans in American society. In 1776, you all said all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and it's government's job to protect that. Abraham Lincoln continues the work of the founders through emancipation. People like Frederick Douglass, as you mentioned, argue, therefore, yes, and therefore, uh, black Americans should be full citizens. 
and integrated into society in this way on American principles. But that's the late 19th century. Things seems to have stalled, right? For a hundred years or almost a hundred years since the end of Reconstruction at least mm -hmm. until 1963 and we get this. King makes that point clear. He says, instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. A lot of black Americans, especially those engaged in the civil rights movement, are frustrated, as you said before, about the lack of progress. But it's interesting, does that lack of progress therefore lead to an angry rejection of the country? Here's what King says, but we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Why does he believe that despite its failure to live up to its principles, America is not a morally bankrupt country? Why does he still have hope? That's a that's a very good question. Um, I think one you know you could you could you could answer it in different ways. Why is there good reason for anyone to hope that? Um, why in particular does King hope that? With regard to King, I think you could say um, maybe to oversimplify a bit. King believes in God, uh, and and that means King believes in a personal providential God, uh, and he believes in the, the quotation he adapted from uh, the old abolitionist Theodore Parker, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That, uh, that, uh, uh, and uh, I think it, it is King's faith that now is the time, as he says. Uh, and I think there's, there's more to it than that. I think that King thinks that a properly, well, first of all, he thinks the country was founded on, on good principles. And these really are the implications of, uh, uh, I mean, equal civil rights, especially, really uh, is the implication of the, of the founders' principles. So we have not only God's justice on our side, we have the founders on our side, too. And most Americans want to be, you know, faithful children of the founders. And if we can appeal to them in the right way, I mean, in a morally sympathetic way, then uh, King is confident that we can, we can gain them to our cause. Uh, King thought a lot, actually, in his school days about whether <clears throat> Christian morals understood in this egalitarian way were simply powerless. Um, and he comes to the conclusion, I mean, for instance, the criticism of Nietzsche of, of, of against Christianity uh, really troubled him in graduate school. And he thought a lot about how the, the Christian moral understanding of things can actually become a power in the world. And the, the practice of nonviolent protest really grabbed his imagination as a initially, I mean, it turns into something late, something else, I think, down the road. But initially, and at its height in 1963, it means an appeal to conscience. It means a moral appeal. And so it's King's faith that people have a conscience uh, and that their moral sense has been shaped by, in some way anyway, by the, the tradition initiated in the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, and so I think that, that sustains his hopefulness.
what does he in the speech he he's talking to a big audience but in the speech he explicitly says i want to talk he's talking to white americans and then he says he turns and says i want to talk to our people black americans what is he saying to those two groups in this speech yeah to white americans i think it's a more um that's that's the appeal that comes i guess first and last uh First and last, here are your principles, live up to them, you know, stated much more eloquently than, than I just did. Here are your principles and here's your history of not living up to them. Um, it's an interesting thing that he says, uh, yeah, it's kind of nice rhetoric. You can, you can sort of feel the power of it, even reading it in that, um, that second full paragraph when uh, those successive clauses that begin 100 years later, you know, 100 years later, you know, we're still sadly crippled, lonely island of poverty, languishing in the corners, and exile in our own land. We are colonized, in effect, in our own country. We are excluded from the, uh, from the, the full civic membership um, <clears throat> in our own country. Uh, and so you hold this before white Americans. What have we done to deserve this? You know, you, you, these the, the square implications of your Declaration of Independence are not qualified by color. They're not qualified by, you know, by national origin or anything like that. All people have, uh, have equal natural rights. And so uh, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's enforce them in law. That's good enough, I suppose, as, some, as a summation of the message to white Americans. To black Americans, it's a little more complicated. To black Americans, I think the core of it is don't despair. Go back to work, meaning go back to work in the cause of justice, even when it may be costly and even when there may be setbacks. Um, go back to work. First of all, sustain your faith. and don't be, how do I want to put this? Um, don't be angry in such a way that becomes self-destructive. Um, I, I, the, the way I try to qualify that is, uh, I think is important because King wanted to stir up anger. Uh, I mean, he thought that the anger was kind of seething within virtually every black American anyway. Uh, and so he does not want to take the position, calm your anger, don't be um, it, um, um, really animated by the, in fact, by he the even, condition he of justice. Says, on that point, Peter, he even says, and those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening. Yeah. If the nation returns to business yeah. as usual. But help me understand then. On the one hand, he knows there's this anger at the injustice that's been happening for decades and centuries. On the other hand, he says, I don't I want you to be angry, but I don't want you to hate. Right. I don't right. want you to be violent. Right. Right. How it's, can he have uh, those two things? It's that's I think a great challenge for King, and I'm not sure. You know, being frank, uh, I mean, I, I think our discussion of King is largely admiring, but uh, but not uh, you know not a hundred percent celebratory, because this is a big gamble on King's part. I think King's calculation is black people are going to be angry no matter what I say, and so what my job is, my responsibility, is to try to channel that anger in a constructive direction, and so 
make it, turn it into protest, right? Hit the streets. You know, you're, you're not going to do that unless there's a certain degree of anger welled up in you. But do it in a nonviolent way. Do it in a way that's going to bring good results. Now, that supposes that King is going to be able to govern that anger and keep it nonviolent once it is aroused. And this is maybe a little oversimple on my part also, but I think in general it's fair to say he was, generally speaking, very successful with that in the movement in the South. And after 1965, when he tries to go north and take on somewhat different issues with a somewhat different um, black audience that isn't the same kind of church-going audience that he's, uh, uh, or congregation or constituency that he's appealed to in the South, he has, he has different results. Um, he, uh, he's much less able to govern the anger that, that was present and maybe further inflamed by the movement in the northern states, especially in the urban areas in the northern states, than he was, than he was able to do in the south. So after this complex call to the uh, African-American community in the United States, he concludes the speech, or he moves on to the end of the speech with this, what has become so famous today and what is now given the, the, the speech its name, I Have a Dream, mm-hmm. where he, he talks about, he returns to the audience at large and talks about, okay, so if you succeed, what kind of society will you have? And he says, here's my dream for America. I have a dream today, a phrase he repeats over and over again. Mm-hmm. What is King's dream for America? First thing about that, I, I might be stepping on a question about King's rhetoric uh, when I say this, uh, so I apologize if I do. Um, that was improvised. Uh, that, really? Uh, he, yeah. That was not written in the speech? Yeah. King, um, uh, the legend is, and I'm not sure this part is true, that, uh, that he did it in response to a suggestion by Mahalia Jackson, who's standing right behind him, you know, who was a singer at, at, uh, at the same event, uh, said, you know, tell him about the dream, Mark. Um, but you can hear a change in the speech. When you listen to the, uh, the audio of the speech, it's actually, for all its, its reputation as being this powerful moving speech, it's relatively dry for a few minutes. And, and that's the few minutes in which King is, is reading or maybe reciting a prepared text. He worked very hard, of course, he knows the, the, the significance of the occasion. So he works hard on the speech and he crafts this rhetoric and argument, but he delivers it, you know, in a fairly restrained and dry kind of way. And it isn't, I think maybe at some point it becomes clear to him that he's maybe not moving the audience the way he wants. And so he shifts into the, the, the preacher mode. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and gets into this, uh, uh, you know. Uh, so I say to you, my friends, I still have a dream. Which are, you know, th- these are fragments of things that he had said in speeches before. But he puts them all together here, and he gets on a, a you know, kind of an emotional wave, and uh, and the result is uh, is really is really powerful. Is really memorable. Um, so that's uh, anyway. That's that's a word about the rhetoric. But you asked me. Yeah. About well, the, about what's, his, what's his dream? Yeah, you asked me about the content of the dream. And uh, I think in the speech, when you parse it out a bit, you, you subject it to some, uh, some analytical um, treatment. 
there, there are really two main themes. There's a theme of justice and a theme of brotherhood. And <laughs> at the risk of uh, going too far with a comparison with the French Revolution, uh, um, you know, there's a kind of liberty, equality, fraternity theme relation going on here. Uh, that uh, the dream for King is justice and liberty understood as full and equal citizenship, full and equal civil rights, protections of person and property, you know, like everybody has, freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, access to the equal access and fair treatment in the criminal justice system and so forth, freedom of association. But there's also something more. And um, he hints at it a bit when he, uh, at the very beginning of the speech, I think maybe you read the passage when uh, King says, or well, it's in that paragraph with the 100 years um, uh, beginnings of the clauses, where King says, 100 years later, we live on a lonely island of poverty. And so the, the civil rights revolution, in his understanding, is integrationist in a pretty expansive way. That is, we're going to be included in the national community of citizens, but integration has an economic dimension. Integration is, uh, I mean, segregation has an economic dimension. It's not only by race, it's also by class, in King's understanding. And so he wants the civil rights movement to be an anti-poverty movement also. Uh, and so that means that civil rights understood as directly derivative of the natural rights in the Declaration of Independence, the classical liberty rights are, that's only one part of it. Um, social and economic rights are another part of it. I think King's understanding, he, he will start to speak post-1965 of broadening the civil rights movement into a human rights movement. And his understanding of human rights, I think, is very much influenced by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that comes in, in 1948, which includes all the old civil rights, but also includes social and economic rights about employment and about, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a minimum standard of living and so forth. And, uh, um, and so King becomes much more concerned with socioeconomic outcomes as part of the dream also. So that's, that's the fuller understanding. The dream is the fully integrated society. I should say one more thing about that. Uh, sorry to go on so long. Um, the, the fully, full integration means political and economic, but it also means social. Uh, he, makes this, he makes this nice little, seemingly gentle, innocent little remark in the, the dream sequence where he says, <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, after he talks about the color of their skin and the content of their character, um, he says, I have a dream. One day down in Alabama, I skip ahead a little bit, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Um, so there's this, the, the, the deepest resistance to integration on the part of those who resisted it, came on the basis of this idea of social equality. And at the heart of the social equality really was the idea of, of racial intermarriage. And, it, and maybe even more particularly than that, you know, intermarriage of black men and white women. Um, 
that absolutely is what the Southern segregationists, uh, you know, didn't wanted to avoid pretty much at all costs. So when King makes this innocent little reference here, implying little black boys are going to be holding hands with little white girls, you know, and they're going to be going to school together and they're going to be living in the same neighborhoods together. Inevitably, you know, some portion of them are going to grow up and they're going to, and they're going to fall in love together. Uh, and so integration means full social equality too. And he's understated about that, but that's, that, that absolutely is part of his, part of his dream vision. Fascinating. So it's really a comprehensive vision, even if it's just alluded to here, of, yeah. a, as you say, a complete, a full integration in every way. This mm-hmm. is his dream. And that part of that social integration is this very famous line, which you just alluded to, that he hopes one day his children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And it seems to me he's saying, if, if that happens, if that's really true about America, then we will have fulfilled our founders' principles of justice, at least on that score. Yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think, uh, I think King, uh, in a way, um, you know, what Stephen Douglas accuses Lincoln of, Lincoln says, absolutely the Declaration of Independence includes people, all people irrespective of color in saying that we have equal natural rights. And Stephen Douglas says, aha, that means you're an integrationist. You want blacks and whites marrying together. And Lincoln was unable to confirm that implication, of course, in the context of the day. Um, would have been politically suicidal for him to do that. But King says, in effect, Douglas is exactly right. That, that absolutely is the, the implication of the Declaration of Independence. Fascinating. Um, look, this speech is given in 1963, as you said. It, it is one of the most powerful and important speeches of the 20th century and really in articulating a vision of the American idea. Um, taking a step back and looking at this, in the, in the arc of the American tradition from the Declaration of Independence to the Gettysburg Address, now to the I Have a Dream speech, looking forward from that, what, if I can just ask you to speculate a little bit, what do you think the prospects are today for this kind of speech? Could this kind of speech be given today? Gosh, you know, um, <laughs> asking a political scientist to speculate, right? Uh, um, is pretty much all we do. But, uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> could it be given today? Yes. And in a way, the outcome is similar and in a way very different. I mean by that, that, I mean, even... We look back on King's speech now and we think, okay, color their skin, content of their character, who disagrees with that? You know, and you look at the opinion polls about King himself, about the speech in particular, about this portion of the speech, nearly 100% approval, you know, tiny percentage of people disapprove. So this seems to be now a kind of universal, almost consensus among, among Americans. But you dig into that a little bit and there's division amid the seeming consensus. And at the time, of course, that King delivered the speech, there's nowhere near a consensus on the, even on the principle of judging by, uh, by character rather than color. Um, <clears throat> so could it be given today? Yes. And in a sense with similar result, sadly, um, in that it, it would have been 
it would be a partisan speech. Uh, I mean, it would be it would be regarded as as taking one side of a debate rather than kind of uniting both sides of a debate. So, in that sense, you know, yes, but with less effect. I mean, I you know, my speculation is a kind of foreboding about this. I mean. Uh, one of the other great speeches of the 19th century that comes before the Gettysburg Address is Lincoln's House Divided speech. And, and uh, somebody could give that speech and be, um, and be pretty well accepted too today, it seems to me. Yeah, that's, that is unfortunate, but a powerful reminder uh, of, of both the, the promise of a speech like this, but the difficulty of, of having that speech move the hearts and minds of people so that we really can be united on these fundamental principles of the founding that King was alluding to. But it yeah. still is a very powerful articulation of the American idea, one worthy of a lot of thought. And I appreciate you taking the time with us today, Peter, to, to give it some thought. I want to encourage our listeners to get a copy, read this speech for yourself, think, think it through in the way that Peter has helped us to do. Peter Myers, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate Jeff, it. It is always a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenga.